Take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Hey! Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. CannabisRadio.com presents The Russ Belleville Show The voice of the marijuana nation Hey, this is great, man Now, here's your host Radical Russ Belleville Good day, tokers and toquettes And I'm taking lovers of liberty It is Friday, June 3rd, 2016 And it's got to be 20 somewhere in the world Welcome to the show. We're coming to you live from the Gant Resort here in Aspen, Colorado for day two of the normal Aspen Legal Seminar. And it was a great seminar day today. Lots of great speakers. We learned uh, about mental illness today. We learned about mental illness in America and how that interfaces with the criminal justice system and the whole drug war itself. Mary Kahn uh, spoke to that today, and we'll have some highlights uh, from her speech today on our show, as well as highlights from a lot of other speakers from yesterday uh, that I finally were was able to uh, uh, edit for today's show. So we'll get to some highlights coming up on today's show. But uh, on Monday, I'll be able to play for you some of the highlights of today's audio and a very inspiring presentation given today by uh, Barry Grissom. He was the U.S. attorney for the state of Kansas, uh, and he's retired now. But you know, when we say U.S. attorneys, we're talking about these people that uh, that punish for uh, cannabis crimes, uh, so-called cannabis crimes, like Melinda Hogg out there in uh, the Northern California district or the the Seattle district people that uh, – or not Seattle, but the Eastern Washington that, that uh, prosecuted the Kettle Falls Five. He's one of those, right, one of those U.S. attorneys, but not one of – those type of U.S. attorneys. He's actually on our side, and he had a great talk today uh, that uh, we will bring you as much of as I can on the show coming up on Monday. But let's take a look at today's show because we've got some great highlights to bring to you for today. Uh, After our Cannabis Radio News, we'll get behind the headlines with Normal's Paul Armentano and one of the most gifted and educated people on the drug war and specifically on marijuana. Paul talked a lot about uh, making the case for marijuana legalization. And we're going to bring you a, a short clip of Paul talking about drug treatment for marijuana, the rehab stats out there that kind of give you a look as to why they want to keep marijuana illegal. It's a cash cow for the drug rehabs. Also coming up on the show, we'll have a government at work segment where I'll give you a portion of the welcome from the Pitkin County Sheriff. Joe DeSalvo, who spoke to us yesterday morning. It's always great when you have the county sheriff welcoming a whole bunch of pot smokers to his town and inviting them to smoke pot. Enjoy yourselves. It was it's amazing. And the clip we've got for you is uh, Sheriff Joe talking the good Sheriff Joe, I should say, for our Arizona listeners uh, is Sheriff Joe DeSalvo talking about the initial problems there were in marijuana legalization and how they, as a progressive sheriff's department, dealt with those problems and kind of set a standard that 
we really wish some of the other sheriffs across Colorado could live up to. Also coming up on the show, we'll do legalization law and order. We've got a clip from attorney Adam Wolf. He's uh, an attorney who's argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, and he detailed the three federal cases that have been underway to try to undermine Colorado's marijuana legalization. You may have heard of the one of Nebraska and Oklahoma against Colorado. But he talked about a couple of others that may have slipped under the radar for you. So the first one he'll talk about that we'll give you the clip of uh, has to do with a Holiday Inn suing over Colorado's marijuana laws. That's quite an interesting uh, case there. And then at the end of the show, we'll have some Cannabis Chronicles attorney Courtney Moran from Portland, Oregon, talking about reconciling the federal cannabis and hemp laws. Then in hour two, we've got clips from Danica Noble on Washington State market caps and Mark Kleiman, <laughs> and that clip from Mary Kahn on mental illness. Stay tuned. It's the best of Normal Aspen Legal Seminar. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Seed to sale, clicks to conversions, and more. You're listening to the Cannabis Radio Network. The cannabis industry is growing, business is booming, and as new opportunities arise in newly legalized states, each market is getting more competitive. Today, it takes more than just being a good grower. Do you have the resources to market and handle this ever-changing business landscape? Let Canna Management Corporation help you grow your canna business with our vast resources and experience to make your business a fully functional service company. Financial management, HR, sales, marketing, efficiency, and more. CMC has the experience and the expertise to improve your business and help you better meet the demands of your clients and customers. Call Canna Management Corporation and let our team get you ready to grow. 415-269-8015. That's 415-269-8015. Or visit canna-management.com. It's time to hemp resent. With Anadina Stanger. I say to you with all the fervor of my soul that God intended men to be free. Rebellion against tyranny is a righteous cause. And I believe that with every ounce of my soul, we are fighting a righteous cause because people need nature. Marijuana! Hemp Resent, only on Cannabis Radio. Sweet sativa. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. I said, on this program, what do they want? My grandchildren and the monster. Did I scare you? Okay. Maybe you're high, too. New beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. It's time for the Cannabis Radio News. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, 
and industrial hemp. Cannabis Radio News is now available exclusively at CannabisRadio.com. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis Radio News. This is your Cannabis Radio News for Friday, June 3rd, 2016. White Plains, New York. Vireo Health, one of the five companies in New York State that began growing and selling non-smokable cannabis medicines this year, is alleged to have illegally smuggled a half million dollars worth of cannabis oils from Minnesota to New York. Minnesota authorities are acting on a tip from a former Vireo employee who alleges that Vireo committed the crime because it wasn't going to meet its 2016 deadline for supplying the medical marijuana program in New York. Vireo is the parent company of Minnesota Medical Solutions, which had employed the tipster. A surprise raid in Minnesota found over five and a half kilograms of cannabis oil missing, listed as outbound in December 2015 with no final address. Vireo denies the allegations and claims software inadequacies failed to account for their destruction of the oil. Phoenix, Arizona, an Arizona administrative law judge has determined that the State Department of Health wrongly denied a hearing for the evaluation of Parkinson's disease as a qualifying medical marijuana condition. The ruling by Judge Dorinda Lang said that, quote, the department has utilized a standard of proof that is higher than the rules call for, end quote, in evaluating a petition for review of Parkinson's and Huntington's diseases. That petition, brought by cannabis radio host nurse Heather Manis, head of the Arizona Cannabis Nurses Association, was denied by the department for not showing strong enough evidence and not proving marijuana was safe for treatment. Judge Lang noted that Manis submitted two peer-reviewed journal studies that certainly qualified as evidence and that the rules don't provide a method of her submitting evidence for marijuana safety. Sacramento, California. More taxes on California medical marijuana may become a reality after the Assembly passed AB 2243 in a 60-12 to vote yesterday. The bill calls for taxes of $9.25 per ounce of marijuana flowers, $2.75 per ounce of pot leaves, and $1.25 per ounce of immature pot plants. Earlier this week, the California Senate passed a flat 15% medical marijuana tax. Localities also tax medical marijuana at around 7.5%. The legislature estimates the Assembly's per-ounce taxes would raise $77 million a year, with funds to be dedicated to local police and environmental cleanup. New York, New York. A Brazilian dancer who entered the country illegally testified at a Manhattan trial Friday about her romantic relationship with a one-time top Drug Enforcement Administration official, saying it began a few months after she arrived in the United States in early 2011 and ended after his arrest last year. Prosecutors subpoenaed Andressa de Lima to testify to support their claims that the now-retired DEA agent, David Polos, failed to disclose his extramarital relationship with the dancer and his part part ownership of a bikini bar because he knew it could cause him to lose his top secret security clearance and his job as assistant special agent in charge of the New York office. Augusta, Maine. The event page for a marijuana trade show this weekend in Augusta was hacked yesterday with a cancellation notice posted on the website. The Kennebec Journal reports that organizers scrambled to fix the listing today and assured the public that the show was still happening this Saturday and Sunday at the Augusta Civic Center. The show, called 
homegrown Maine and put on by the medical marijuana caregivers of Maine is billed as, quote, the largest medical marijuana trade show in New England, end quote. There will be over 130 exhibitors, speakers, and educational panels on cannabis issues. A medication tent is made available for registered patients to vaporize cannabis on site. Catherine Lewis, chairman of the board of medical marijuana caregivers of Maine, says this is the second time in two months the group has experienced a cyber attack. Providence, Rhode Island. Petitioners from Regulate Rhode Island came to the Statehouse to deliver more than 1,300 signatures calling on the General Assembly to regulate marijuana. According to recent polling cited by the group, 55% of Rhode Islanders support legalization of marijuana. The activists want legislative leaders to allow two nearly identical legalization bills to move through the House and Senate. Marijuana legalization bills have been submitted annually for five years, but never even get to the committee vote stage. This has been your Cannabis Radio News for Friday, June 3rd, 2016. I'm Russ Belville. Every strain, every sale, every medical study. Keep it right here on the Cannabis Radio Network. Play as Ted Growing, expelled botany sophomore and the biggest grower in town, only on Weed Firm Replanted. Available on the App Store and Google Play. It's a lot of work being the biggest grower in town. Maintaining a room full of plants while dealing with a slew of eccentric customers, from a hardcore partier to the curious neighbor next door. Is anybody home? Help me expand my bud business by unlocking new strains, customizing my grow room, and completing challenges that you can't get enough of. Grow your empire so big you can see it from space. Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download. Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing. Hey, this is Willie Nelson for Norman. And I smoke pot and I like it a lot. I learned a long time ago that marijuana is a lot safer than alcohol. There's nothing wrong with the responsible use of marijuana by adults. It's time we stopped arresting and started respecting those who smoke marijuana responsibly. To learn what you can do to help, contact Normal at NORML.org or call toll-free 888-67-NORMAL. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Don't want to spend money on a night out, but don't know what to do other than watching TV or playing video games? Consider playing guitar, bass, banjo, or mandolin. The instrument will give you hours of entertainment with friends with minimal expense. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension, downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today, or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we want to take a look at some of our clips from the Normal Aspen Legal Seminar. We begin with Paul Armentano, Normal's Deputy Director and the uh, Science Editor for Freedom Leaf Magazine. He was delivering a presentation on making the case for marijuana legalization. We give you this short clip of his look at drug rehab statistics. Enjoy. Now, what about this notion that we have all of these people seeking treatment for marijuana? Well, 
This was a shock to Bertha Madras. I'm sure it's not a surprise uh, to many of you that very few people voluntarily self-identify themselves and say, I'm somebody who's eligible for marijuana treatment. I need marijuana treatment. In fact, what we find is that the majority of people who are in so-called treatment programs for marijuana are there because they are arrested for marijuana use, typically possession, and they were given an option by the court. They said, you can do some time or you can go to this treatment program. And if you complete the treatment program, uh, this incident is largely going to go away. So not surprisingly, the majority of people when given that choice choose to go to the treatment program. In fact, we see that over six out of 10 of individuals in marijuana treatment are there because the criminal justice system ordered them there. By contrast, if we look at all the other illicit drugs, we see that only 37% of individuals in treatment for all of the rest of the drugs are there because the criminal justice system put them there. We see that only about 15% of people in marijuana treatment are self-referred. That means they voluntarily Put, chose to put themselves there. And this is really telling. This, this, these, these data all come from the federal government. SAMHSA stands for the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Association Administration. We see that nearly 40% of adults who enter drug treatment for marijuana, they haven't used marijuana in the last month. So clearly these individuals have already stopped or ceased using their cannabis before they ever enter marijuana treatment. They've done that because probably when they were facing trial, uh, their uh, defense attorney said, hey, you probably want to get off the marijuana while you're on trial for a marijuana violation. So they do. But then they have to go to treatment anyway as an uh, outcome of the uh, charge. And so this is important, too. According to the TEDS data, 85% of marijuana admissions receive ambulatory services. That means they're not staying in a room, they're not being overseen. It means they check in with their counselor and then they leave. That's not the case with most people assigned drug treatment for other drugs. Most people have inpatient treatment. The marijuana designees overwhelmingly receive outpatient treatment. So again, uh, this sort of dependency does not fit any conventional definition of dependency like we're talking with other substances. Now, again, we know that marijuana is classified as a Schedule I controlled substance, which means as a definition, it is to have the highest potential for dependency. Yet, when we look at scientific literature, we see that cannabis' dependence liability, there's a consensus that's only about 9%. It means about one out of 11 people that try cannabis at some point during their life use of the drug will use the drug habitually. Dependence liability is not the same thing as addiction. It's actually a much lower, more amorphous standard. Uh, I have some colleagues that take issue with this percentage. They think it's too high. Um, I let them fight that battle. It's not my battle to fight. I don't believe we need to show that cannabis is without potential risk, or that cannabis is innocuous. We simply need to show that cannabis possesses an acceptable level of safety and risk comparable to the standards that society upholds other substances, be they recreational substances or therapeutic substances too. And we see by this chart, 
cannabis clearly falls within that range. In fact, it's at the low end of that range. Uh, its dependence liability is very little different than caffeine. It's the same as anxiolytics, like your benzodiazepine drugs, and it's certainly much lower than alcohol and tobacco, for instance. And again, if you read the DSM-5 and you read about marijuana-related use disorders and you read about caffeine-related use disorders, it's practically the same language, just cut and paste from one section of that book to another section of the book. Very, very similar. You ask people who use marijuana, uh, do you spend more time than you care for thinking about marijuana? Do you want to cut down on your marijuana use through the day, but you have difficulty doing it? You ask those people the same questions about caffeine, they also say... Come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help, help, I'm being repressed! All right, that sound means that it's 420 here. In Aspen, Colorado. That's right. It's legal and it's 420. And we've got to take a very important safety briefing. I hope you get a chance to get your safety briefing on as well. When we come back, we've got the Pitkin County Sheriff welcoming us marijuana users to his county and discussing the early pitfalls of marijuana legalization. Then tax expert Pat Oglesby joins us live. Stay tuned. We have your smoking section right here. This is the Cannabis Radio Network. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Tommy Chong is ready to cut through the smoke and change the tone of Tilk Radio. I hope everybody's got their vape pen handy or their pipe or their bong or whatever you use to do your medicine. But you don't, it's not a requirement. You don't have to be high for this show. Yeah, you do. <laughs> okay. I don't know who you're talking to. You have to be high to do anything. At least I do. I don't know about you. In fact, I've been high so long that being straight is another high. The Tommy Chung Podcast, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome to my world. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. I do not like them, Sam. I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. Coming soon to a city near you, Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. Get all your cannabis accounting, legal, and compliance questions answered by their knowledgeable panel of industry experts who want to help your cannabis boom. Whether you're a grower, dispensary operator, or a newcomer to the field, your cannabis needs Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. For information on upcoming events, visit CannabisFinanceBootCamp.com. Reforming America's marijuana prohibition laws takes education, lobbying, and voting. From Washington, D.C. to your state capitol to your city hall, marijuana law reform involves all levels of civic life. Learn how you can make your impact with elected officials 
as we take a look at our government at work. Well, one of the best elected officials here in the state of Colorado would be the Pitkin County Sheriff, Joe DeSalvo, who welcomed us here to beautiful Aspen, Colorado, for the normal Aspen legal seminar. And in his discussion, he talked about how he goes around the state talking to other sheriffs and trying to get them to understand that the fight is over and marijuana is legal now. Here, he discusses some of the early pitfalls of legalization. And believe it or not, one of the first things that happened after legalization was we found some issues that I don't think anyone um, foresaw. One of which was one of the most interesting things that hit us right between the eyes was um, clearly it's a town of about 5,000 people uh, when people like you are not here. And it's about 20,000 people when people like you are here for Christmas time. And uh, we clearly have a big resort community with a lot of hotels. And we all know from traveling as much as we all do that when we leave a bottle of vodka or some cookies in our hotel room, a maid usually takes them home, and that's never been a problem. Well, we had a, uh, a maid, a Hispanic maid, non-English speaking woman, uh, clean out a hotel room, and in it was a box of chocolates, and she took it home and shared it with her five-year-old, and it was an accidental ingestion of a high dose of marijuana. So, boom, we had our first problem. You know, this was not seen by anybody who could ever think this way that this could happen. So we immediately started uh, a program in hotels through the Chamber Resort Association that was a program in Spanish that said to maids and, and hotel workers, don't take anything home if you don't know what it is. And so that was our, our one of our first problems. The second problem we had was look-alike packaging. We had a couple of accidental ingestions from edible products that looked like Reese's peanut butter cups, Snickers bars, things like this. So we went to the dispensary owners and said, hey, could you do us a favor and take that off the shelves? You're not doing us any favors. And they did. So we all had an interest in, in public safety and success of the organization. And that's what we did a lot of work on. The other things we did was we found that, once again, people like you <laughs> would come to Aspen, buy an ounce or two of marijuana, a vaporizer, some edibles. And because this is literally can kids in a candy store, people would overbuy. They'd be here for three days and buy three ounces. And, and it, was, it was crazy. And uh, I think a lot of people did not realize that they can't pack this stuff and get on a plane with it. When you land, you're going to be in an illegal state. Um, so we put an amnesty box at the airport. When you leave, you'll see a green box out there with a leaf on it, and that's your last chance to throw your stash away before you go home. Is the sheriff's deputies actually open up and clean out that box every day. So if you're looking for some decent weed, uh, can, any uniformed deputies will be there. And, and it's funny, when we first put the box out there, it was the first one in the state, and we got a lot of exposure. And I had a flood of people asking to be the amnesty box deputy. Uh, but you know what was really funny about the whole thing is for the first three months or so, 
The only thing we got out of there was Starbucks cups, half-eaten sandwiches. Everyone thought it was a trash dispenser, you know, because Amnesty Box made no sense. And the airport, who uh, is run by the county, said, we said, let's put a big leaf on it. And they said, ain't happening. Well, now if you go out there, we finally got our point across, and there's a big leaf out there. And Jerry's right, about once every week, the deputy goes out there, and we get a lot of weed out of that thing. And packs vaporizers that people buy at 280 bucks a pop, use them once, and put them in an amnesty box. So, yeah, I, well, I, you know, I was just thinking about, is there, like, is there like some kind of fun for broke, stoners that we could donate this stuff to uh, <laughs> you know even broke guys should be able to get a pax um so, so one of after we started this and we were dealing with these fires that were coming up and believe it or not in the first year and a half or two years we had not made one single arrest for driving under the influence of marijuana in Picking County. So we realized that, yeah, maybe all the fear that people had about driving was not really the, the number one concern. Uh, we focused on now responsible use, responsible sale, and responsible storage. That's what our group went towards. And we had a lot of success with that. Uh, we started doing programs. Uh, our first program was in a room about this size, and maybe 50 uh, parents came. We, 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 the invitation was more or less to adults and parents to get introduced to this new product. And we laid out every delivery system on a table like this. And I had friends that were in the room that had been smoking pot for 40 years, came in and saw a vapor pen, had no idea what it was. Saw a Pax vaporizer, no idea what it was. Sodas, butters, all that stuff. And uh, it was an opportunity, we thought, for adults to look at what might be in kids' backpacks. And even today, three years later, it's amazing how undereducated parents are about what's going on. So our focus shifted from basically adult community to children and what we're going to do with that. And I'll get into that a bit in a minute or two. That's Pitkin County Sheriff Joe DeSalvo welcoming us yesterday to Aspen, Colorado. And it was very interesting to hear him talk about uh, the early pitfalls of marijuana legalization and not being ready for the maids, for example, picking up edibles that they didn't know about or uh, uh, people buying. He talked about people buying way too much weed and, and having too much of it on them and uh, having to leave it at the airport amnesty box. I mean, it was a great discussion. The full discussion from all of these clips, as a matter of fact, the full version of all of these clips from today's show will be uploaded to my SoundCloud uh SoundCloud page later next week. So follow at Radical Russ for that. Coming up next, Pat Oglesby on marijuana taxation. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Earn your PhD in THC monetization with CannabisRadio.com. Don't be late. Normal stands for responsible adult cannabis use. If cannabis use is causing problems in your life, consider taking a break or seeking medical assistance. Consider ceasing cannabis use if you have a family history of mental illness. 
Don't drive or operate heavy machinery while impaired by cannabis use. Cannabis use is not without risks, even though the risks may be far less than those posed by legal drugs. Marijuana is not addictive, but listening to the Russ Belleville Show is... Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. The cannabis community is a diverse set of people from all walks of life. Conservative and liberal, black and white, straight and gay, rich and poor, and everyone in between. Learn more about the people we are freeing from adult cannabis prohibition in our Cannabis Community Chat. Welcome back, everybody. Today for the Cannabis Community Chat, we welcome back a friend of the show, tax expert Pat Oglesby joins us on the phone. How you doing, Pat? Super, Russ. How are you? Uh, well, I'm in Aspen, Colorado, and the sun is shining. I couldn't be very much better than I am right now, I tell you. Right. I've, I've, I went to that uh, normal conference in 2010, so I, they, I know they have a great time out there and have a lot of uh, legalism going on. Oh, absolutely. We've learned a whole bunch, and I'll have all the highlights and, and the full clips up available on my SoundCloud page next week. But I, I wanted to get you on the line to talk about marijuana taxation. There's been uh, some bills going through into some of the states. Uh, most recently, California, we took a look at where the Senate passed a bill for a 15% price tax on marijuana. And the assembly went and passed a bill for a weight tax where they're going to break it up. I, I think it was $9.25 for flowers, two seventy five an ounce for leaves, and buck twenty five an ounce for uh, seedlings. So I, I just wanted to get your take on these taxation schemes that we're seeing, the, the, the pros and cons of a price taxation versus, say, a weight uh, taxation that we're looking at. Good deal. The, well, the starting point for what go, what's going on in California is that both of those taxes would apply to adult use cannabis if the 2016 initiative passes. So it sounds like the House has taken one piece and the Senate has taken the other piece. The, the, and these would apply to medical. Now, it's always been controversial um, applying a tax to medical and I'm not sure what's going on out there, but there's, there is clearly the sense in California that a lot of what's labeled medical is not, in fact, medical, but is, but is being used by adults for their own purposes. So, um, but I digress. You're asking about price versus weight, and that's, that's a long story. I'm not sure where to start. Um, price is easy to figure out. I mean, you, you go to the store and you pay a price-based tax every day, maybe not in Oregon, but most of the people in the, in the country, it's, it's a simple tax to collect. It's pretty simple to administer. Um, usually, price taxes are so low, you're at the 4%, 6%, 10% range, that people, it's, it's hardly worth it to cheat. You know, if you're going to get... Um, if you're going to start cheating on taxes to, to 
cheap for nickel and dime mm-hmm. means that a price tag, a low rate price tax, is is not uh, probably not going to be the kind of of tax that you cheat on. And I'll back way up and say that one of the things I'm concerned about as as somebody who's worked for the government side on taxes is that it's it's nice to have taxes that are hard to cheat, that people will actually pay and that we can agree about and that there are not a lot of gray areas. Because when you have a lot of gray areas, the sharp operators kind of beat out the, the honest business person. Mm-hmm. And if it's easy to cheat, that's that's not what we want. Um, go ahead. Rick. Oh, I was just wondering, you know, with this uh, 15% tax that's being proposed by the California Senate, uh, one of the down, downsides I see of a price-based tax is, and, and I'm hoping this happens, we get marijuana legalization passed in California, and once we unleash that $12 billion market, we'll see a massive crash in the prices, and then all of these promises we made on how much tax revenue we'd bring in well, you're not going to see that much tax revenue when the price crashes so much. Could that be one of the disadvantages? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's a disadvantage depending on uh, on your point of view. And some people would like to have no tax at all. But I think that, and I appreciate your statesman-like approach to this, Russ, of saying that this is kind of a deal with the public, that cannabis consumers aren't in, a, in the majority and that that we're going to compromise and say look we'll pay some tax um if you'll if you'll stop arresting us <laughs> yeah. and that's that's the deal that the the public a lot of people in the public go for yeah. they say yes thank you we'll vote yes and and that is that is a concern that with a price based tax that that over time yeah that you know that this stuff doesn't cost hundreds of dollars an ounce really um, to get to the consumer, and when the when the true price comes out, if you if you take a percentage of the price, the the tax is going to go away. Yeah. So the deal that that you're making with the public is it, you're kind of backing off of it. Now, on the other side, this assembly version where they want to tax uh, cannabis buds at nine dollars twenty five cents an ounce. Uh, I, I, my imagination, and, and they propose something similar to this in Oregon, would be that would be a much harder tax to administer because you got to administer it at the production side, wouldn't you? Yes, that's correct. Now you've this is a, it is harder, and it's like uh, you know. I, let me say that that the first it's it's easy to make the case that the first tax you put on is a price tax because it's so easy to do. You just it, it takes the, the – in the in a heartbeat, you can put on a price tax. But a production tax, you need to have a measurement. You've got to go out there and calibrate the scales and have people buy into the system. Luckily, for, the, for those who want to do a weight tax, Colorado is way ahead on that. And I'm, I see out there that in the uh, – at the – and Aspen, that you've got some a lot of experience on that. I saw Sam Kamen, mm-hmm. who was um, my co-chair on on the in the Blue Ribbon Commission in California of the Regulatory and Tax Structure Working Group, is out there, and and he's familiar with how that works. And and the people in Colorado are making it work. Now, look, the people would rather the growers would rather not pay tax. They'd rather not have the hassle. But what happens is. They they weigh it, they put a manifest on it, and they pay the tax, and it's it's working pretty well. The, the stories I hear is 
are that the weight tax in Colorado is working pretty well. Hmm. Now there's, they're making it work. There's there's another type of taxation that's reared its ugly head as we start to listen to some of the public policy people, in particular Mark Kleiman, who has floated the idea of a potency tax, taxing uh, cannabis products by the potency of THC uh, in the product. Um, what what do you think about that idea? Well, that's what we do with liquor. With if you buy a bottle of eighty percent liquor of of eighty proof liquor and you buy a, a bottle of 100-proof liquor, whether it's a fifth or a quart or whatever the size is, you pay 80% of the tax on the 80-proof that you do on the 100-proof. So we tax liquor by alcohol content. So that's a model that folks say makes sense. For cannabis at this point, it is – let me let me draw another analogy. Tobacco. Nobody can – tax, and nobody does tax, tobacco by nicotine content or tar content. And so we've got two examples there, the the liquid being alcohol and the solid being tobacco. And I think it's just in, as, a, as a starting point, you might say, well, concentrates we could tax like liquor because they're in a, they pass through a liquid form and, and before they're incorporated into edibles or tinctures or whatever, you could put the tax on at, at on the concentrate in liquid form because that's homogeneous. That is to say, we we take a we take a vial of concentrate and you put your eyedropper in there and I put my eyedropper in there and we both run it through the system and we get the same number. We agree, just like alcohol. We're a long way from from having standards for how to measure. THC in concentrates. Now that Rose Habib out of the work lab has done a lot, a lot of work on that, and it's we're, we don't have standards. And let me just as an aside, what I'm what I'm hearing, Russ, is that for testing for for potency, this is a digression. But what what I hear from people in labs is that. You take your, your in, in many states, since there are no standards and there's no agreed way to do testing, that you take your product to the tester, and, and in some of these cases, it's kind of what number do you want? Um, and how, and, the, and the, the low bidder is getting the business and giving the customer kind of the THC level, you know, what, what, that they would like to have on show up on there, and that there's not any oversight, then the oversight is happening only by from the press. Now the so that's a that's a well. I'm just wondering about the the on the alcohol taxation uh, taxation by proof. Uh, the public policy goal of that would be to discourage the overconsumption of the higher potency alcohol. I imagine uh, because Correct. it's dangerous and you can die from alcohol poisoning. So right. from a policy angle, it, I don't think the analogy holds up when we're talking about cannabis, as the more potent cannabinoids are not going to kill anyone. Well, let me say this: it's a it's a it's a straight line. That is, it's not an it's not an exponential. Well, you do make a good point. We tax the alcohol in liquor higher than we tax the alcohol in beer. Mm -hmm. That is at the federal level. The states have different rules. But it is it is exactly that point at the point that liquor is harder to handle. People don't 
you know, people get carried away with liquor compared to beer. Beer still has problems. So indeed, there there is this this notion that the the higher the uh, there are more dangerous forms. But when we get to liquor, um, we don't tax hundred. That if if you wanted to extend that, you'd tax hundred proof liquor even more heavily than eighty proof liquor. Yeah. Um, but but that's a good point. So uh, yeah, the the we do for liquor, we say. Uh, Liquor's more dangerous than beer, so yeah. we're going to tax it more heavily. Well, Pat Oglesby, it's always enlightening on the tax issues when we bring you in. And is there any uh, website or contact information you'd like to give out? Newrevenue.org. All right. Check it's it. my website. And let me, let, me, let me back up just a minute, Russ, and I know that you're a Sanders supporter. I, I think you are. That yeah. the, uh, there, There's an alternative to taxation, and it is... Uh, municipal stores. Municipal stores are up and running in North Bonneville, Washington. Hmm. So if, if the word socialism doesn't scare you away. <laughs> there the, we go. All right. Thank you so much. A, it, Th- okay, Russ. Thanks, Pat. We're feeling the burn. We're back with more from Okay, Norman. go get them. After this. All right. Take care. This Thank is you, the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Previously on the Stoner Jesus Show. St. Paul's doing good work. It's why, Greg, you're a prune tang. If I can use a medical term. Yes. <laughs> the New England Medical Journal. Oh, my That's God. That's right. Well, you can call me Dr. St. Paul now. Dr. St. Paul. I don't think I will. No. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't even qualify to be a vet. Oh, I'm a special kind of vet. I'll make him less lonely. The Stoner Jesus Show. Live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Or find the Stoner Jesus Show podcast on demand at CannabisRadio.com and StonerJesus.net. Peace, bitches. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. And if standing for the Constitution make you a wacko bird, then I am a very, very proud wacko bird. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. Don't want to spend money on a night out, but don't know what to do other than watching TV or playing video games? Consider playing guitar, bass, banjo, or mandolin. The instrument will give you hours of entertainment with friends with minimal expense. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension, downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today, or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. said that when there's a gold rush, it's a good time to be in the pick and shovel business. 
Today, we look at the rapidly evolving markets in the marijuana green rush in our Cannabis Chronicles. Welcome back, everybody. Today, for the Cannabis Chronicles, we're going to turn things over to the world of industrial hemp, where one of the leading experts in the field, Courtney Moran, an attorney from my home city of Portland, Oregon, addressed the normal Aspen legal seminar here uh, yesterday and gave us some details about the federal laws on hemp. In Monson vs. DEA, a Circuit 2009, the A Circuit concluded, under the CSA, marijuana is defined as all cannabis sativa, regardless of the THC concentration. The CSA likewise makes no distinction between cannabis grown for drug use and for industrial use. They also noted that the CSA unambiguously bans the cultivation of marijuana regardless of its use. And in footnote four, the court noted, which I pointed out to you in that definition before, the statutory definition of marijuana excludes certain parts of the plant cannabis sativa L, not relevant to this discussion. The court further stated, we find no evidence that Congress intended otherwise than to ban the growth of all C sativa, absent compliance with the federal registration requirement. They confirmed the conclusions of the district court and noted that industrial hemp, as defined by the North Dakota statute, is marijuana. So the courts have been consistent in upholding DEA's interpretation of the definition of marijuana under the Controlled Substances Act to say that it includes all C sativa, does not matter what the THC concentration is, does not matter what the use is, marijuana, industrial hemp, all C sativa, all cultivation is prohibitive absent that federal registration requirement. Now, this has slightly changed in 2014, which we will get to. The other landmark case for industrial hemp is Hemp Industries versus DEA. Now, in 2001, the DEA issued an interpretive rule which stated that all products containing any amount of THC are Schedule I controlled substances. So the manufacturers and distributors that sell industrial hemp products, especially hemp seed, hemp oil, and hemp seed oil cake, appealed this regulation because this regulation would have banned the possession and the sale of any of the products that they had been selling for years. So they filed a suit in the Ninth Circuit, but the Ninth Circuit abstained from considering the merits of the case because DEA had issued only an interpretive rule and not a final rule. But they did conclude that THC naturally occurring with non-psychoactive hemp products did not fall within the DEA's regulation. Then in 2003, the DEA did finally issue final rules, which exempted from control non-psychoactive hemp products that contain trace amounts of THC that are not intended for human consumption. So all of these retailers and manufacturers, if any of their products were you know, hemp foods, for example, still prohibited. So still an issue with any hemp products intended for human consumption. So once DEA had issued these final rules, the Ninth Circuit considered the merits of the case. The Ninth Circuit concluded, under the Chevron standards, Congress did not regulate non-psychoactive industrial hemp in Schedule One. The Ninth Circuit looked to whether the DEAs followed appropriate procedures in trying to classify non-psychoactive industrial hemp products as a controlled substance, and they held that the DEA's action is not a mere classification of industrial hemp, or of THC, excuse me, regulations. It improperly renders naturally occurring non-psychoactive hemp illegal for the first time. 
The Ninth Circuit concluded DEA cannot regulate naturally occurring THC not contained within or derived from marijuana. Non-psychoactive hemp products, because non-psychoactive hemp is not included in Schedule 1. DEA did not appeal this decision to the Supreme Court. So HIA versus DEA, the 2004 case, Hemp 2, confirmed the legality of industrial hemp products, even for products intended for human consumption. So we do not have a split between the circuits. First and Eighth Circuits say industrial hemp cultivation is illegal absent the federal registration. The Ninth Circuit says industrial hemp products are legal. They didn't even touch on the cultivation issue. So any hemp products that you can find in any store, those are all legal products. They always have been. This case confirmed that. It's the cultivation that is the issue. Now, despite these rulings in the First and Eighth Circuit, states started to legalize hemp in 1999 after, in 1998, Canada legalized full commercial cultivation. Now, North Dakota is right on the border of Canada. There are farmers in northern North Dakota that saw, hey, half a mile away from me, there are farmers growing industrial hemp. They are making economic profits from this crop. Why can't I grow this? So seeing that economic potential in 1999, North Dakota became the first state to re-legalize industrial hemp. 2002, Montana, West Virginia. 2008, Vermont. 2009, Maine and Oregon. 2012, Colorado. 2013, Kentucky and California. This is only nine states over 14 years. Now in August of 2013, the Department of Justice issued the Cole Memo outlining the aid enforcement priorities in regards to marijuana in response to Washington and Colorado legalizing adult use marijuana. Congressman Blumenauer in Oregon, he has been a champion for all cannabis uh, federally and in the state of Oregon. And he wrote a letter to the Oregon uh, Department of Justice saying, well, shouldn't this Cole Memo apply to industrial hemp if DEA considers the definition of marijuana to say all cannabis sativa? So U.S. Attorney Amanda Marshall responded, since industrial hemp is marijuana under the CSA, these eight enforcement priorities do apply to industrial hemp just as they do for all forms of cannabis. Federal prosecutors will remain aggressive when it comes to protecting these eight priorities. So in Oregon specifically, this really did help move our program along. Uh, We had legalized back in 2009, and it wasn't until after the issuance of this memo that the Department of Agriculture began uh, putting together a rules advisory committee. A year later, we finally had licenses in place, and we were able to cultivate last year. Then the Agricultural Act of 2014 came into play. And in the Farm Bill, there is um, a provision outlining industrial hemp research. So since uh, February 7th of 2014, when President Obama signed into law the Agricultural Act of 2014, we have been able to conduct research of industrial hemp. So the provisions of the Farm Bill provide that state departments of agriculture and institutions of higher education are authorized to conduct industrial hemp research and agricultural pilot programs for industrial hemp research, including market research. What Congress also did, which is very important, is they defined industrial hemp. This is the first time industrial hemp has been defined in federal law. And again, as I mentioned this earlier, it's defined as its arbitrary 0.3% THC concentration. But at least we're getting somewhere. 
In response, since February of 2014, 18 states have legalized some form of industrial hemp cultivation. You'll see I have listed on here, some states have legalized only research as is is compliant with the Agricultural Act of 2014, but some states have legalized full commercial cultivation. And this is really significant. There's so much media attention around marijuana uh, adult use legalization. Four states have legalized, DC has legalized, but in two years, 18 states have legalized industrial hemp cultivation. Where's the media attention around that? Now, pursuant to the provisions in the Agricultural Act of 2014, there are at least 20 universities that are engaging in industrial hemp research. There are likely more. However, these universities still have to comply with the DEA registration requirement. So all of these universities, if they are planning to import viable hemp seeds, they have had to go through the DEA registration process, go through the import procedure process, which takes a very long time. DEA, uh, you know, has been hesitant, but has granted these licenses or these registrations. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar, uh, back in 2014, Kentucky tried to implement their industrial hemp research program. They purchased seeds for their farmers in Uh, from Italy. They had the seeds imported at the border. DEA seeds the seeds. Customs held on to them. A lawsuit was filed after some negotiations. They were finally able to get the seeds back and were able to plant. But DEA is trying to seize control over industrial hemp, any aspect that they can, despite the allowance that has been granted in the Agricultural Act. Now, Congress... While they have not uh, enacted the Industrial Hemp Farming Act, it is a bill that has been put before Congress six different times. It is a companion bill right now going through the uh, U.S. legislature, unlikely to actually gain any traction. However, to protect the provisions that they put in place in the Agricultural Act, they um, started putting in protections in the appropriations bills, similar to what they have done for medical marijuana in the last two appropriations bills. So in the 2015 Consolidated and Further Continuing Appropriations Act, they put in Section 539, which prohibits any funds from DEA or DOJ to be used in contravention of Section 7606, which is that research provision. In 2016, they enacted a similar rider in that provision, but they also put in an additional rider, which is very helpful for any uh, farmers that are or processors trying to engage in market research, which is authorized under the Farm Bill. So, Section 760, excuse me, Section 763 removes any federal funding from any federal agency that interferes with the research provisions under the Agricultural Act but also any funds that would be used to prohibit the transportation, processing, sale, or use of industrial hemp that is grown or cultivated in compliance with the Farm Bill, but within or outside the state. So as we already discussed, hemp products are legal. The issue is the cultivation. But this allows very clearly for transportation across state lines Okay, it doesn't allow it. It removes any uh, funding from agencies to interfere with that transportation, which is very significant. So this is going to be coming into play this summer and this upcoming fall when farmers that are going to be harvesting their plants want to send their uh, crops across the state.
Courtney Moran there speaking on Industrial Hemp. And we'll have her full presentation as well as the presentations of other presenters at the Aspen Normal Legal Seminar available on my SoundCloud page sometime next week when I get the time to upload them. But that's all the time I got for Hour 1. Stay tuned. Hour 2 is coming up next. We've got Danica Noble talking about Washington State market caps, plus a little dig at Mark Kleiman. That always makes me smile. Then we'll hear from Adam Wolf on the uh, Safe Streets Alliance case to try to undermine Colorado's marijuana laws in federal court. We'll wind things up with Mary Kahn discussing mental illness in America. For everyone here at the Gantt Resort, Normal and CannabisRadio.com, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Where you can tope. I inhale. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about tope on Toker Talk Radio. So by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Portland, Oregon at Rolla J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of ganja graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reaper mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. All right, welcome back, Tokers and Toquettes. Token Lovers of Liberty. Hour two here on the Russ Bellville Show, live from Aspen, Colorado. Welcome to the weekend. It's a beautiful weekend here in Aspen. Sun is shining, temperatures in the 70s. Right after the show, I'll be heading out to a party, a fundraiser party, out at uh, Jerry Goldstein's house. He's the... Uh, the 
esteemed criminal defense attorney. Uh, I I could tell you everybody that he's defended, but it's a long list. But Manuel Noriega is on the list, <laughs> the former leader of Panama. Uh, Google it, kids. Look it up. But uh, anyway, that party's coming up here at the end of the hour, so I might skip out of here just a little bit early so I can make my way to the shuttle buses. But uh, in the meantime, we've got some more clips from the normal Aspen Legal Seminar. We're going to hear from Danica Noble. She's uh, with Normal Women of Washington and does a lot of great work up there in Washington State. And she's also worked a lot in various federal agencies. So she gave a, a presentation on the, on the feds and the various agencies that have some sort of impact on marijuana laws and her perspective on their reaction to legalization. Uh, we'll, we'll have that full presentation available on my SoundCloud page, but uh, the clip we're going to bring you is her discussing Washington State market caps, where the state tried to predetermine how many dispensaries and how much canopy space there would be for the legal marijuana market in Washington and what a disaster that turned out to be. So you'll hear that in the first segment. Uh, after our uh, 20 after break, uh, we'll have a second segment where we'll feature Adam Wolf, a, an attorney who's uh, litigated in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, discussing the court cases that are being brought in federal courts to try to undermine the legalization law in Colorado and the other states for that matter as well. You've heard of the Nebraska and Oklahoma case and Nebraska and Oklahoma suing Colorado at the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rejecting the suit six to two. But uh, he discusses another case where a Holiday Inn tried to sue uh, under RICO statutes. And uh, RICO is the Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organizations Act. It's, uh, it's used for continuing criminal enterprises. It's used for, you know, mobsters, <laughs> mafia, right? And uh, this was a case where they, Holiday Inn tried to use it uh, under the guise of a, uh, a litigation firm, a, a lobbyist firm uh, called Safe Streets Alliance. He discusses that case and, and, and how the RICO applies to the legal marijuana states. And then in our third segment, we'll hear from Mary Kahn, uh, an attorney from Texas who gave us a, a rundown on mental ir- illness in America and how much of that is intertwined with our criminal justice system. So some great highlights coming up here in just a, a little bit. And uh, before we hit the break, I just wanted to mention also, I was reading a piece online about uh, Donald Trump calling him out for uh, basically calling out the media for not calling Donald Trump a racist. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's how the, you know how the media weasels around certain things. They won't say that someone lied. They'll say they misspoke. In this case, they say his comments are racially tinged. <laughs> no, they're just racist. Uh, the latest one is he, uh, he uh, wants to disqualify the judge in his Trump University case because the judge is of Hispanic heritage and belongs to a Latino uh, law society. Right? So he wants to disqualify someone for federal work based on their race, based on their heritage. And cites the fact that, well, it's a conflict of influence. It's a conflict of interest because I'm the one who wants to build the wall. (laughs) Yeah, and then I guess earlier today he had an appearance where he pointed out an African-American in his crowd and said, look, there's my (laughs) African-American. Like, my African-American. Oh, my God. What a crazy race this is. We're back in just two minutes. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com.
Next to THC and CBD, you can now add CBR to your cannabis vernacular. CBR as in CannabisRadio.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. You're listening to Radical Russ on the Russ Belleville Show. Are you playing an acoustic guitar but want to be louder without an amp? Try a resonator guitar. The fingerboard extension has national resophonic and other resonators, square necks and round necks. Stop by the fingerboard extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. Go wild hog in the woods. Remember, friends, there's more to life than marijuana. I just can't remember what it is. Why'd I come in here? You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everyone. Radical Russ coming to you live from the Gantt Resort here in Aspen, Colorado, for the normal Aspen Legal Seminar. And uh, I saw something here in Aspen when I was out at the grocery store. Something I have yet to have seen. It was a man wearing a Donald Trump 2016 t-shirt. And and I do not believe wearing it ironically. <laughs> like, I believe this guy really supports Donald Trump for president. And it's it's remarkable. You know, he seemed to be, you know, he was walking upright and uh, seemed to be capable of dressing himself and driving a vehicle. Um had the look of somebody who has a job and is able to, you know, think and speak English. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know what the point is, what the excuse is for uh, this guy wanting to support Donald Trump or, or anybody wanting to support Donald Trump. And I've, you know, I've taken a lot of heat uh, on the politics angle here because I've been so Bernie or bust and everything and, and kind of, kind of, and vehemently against Hillary Clinton. I get people that say, well, what do you want? A President Trump? Like, no, absolutely not. I, you know, you thought George W. Bush was a bad example. Oh, my God. This guy is an outright xenophobic, racist, homophobe, misogynist, just every 
terrible word you can come up with to describe a person fits Donald Trump. So, no, I don't want a Donald Trump presidency. And that's why I'm lobbying so hard for Bernie Sanders is because he's the one who can beat Trump in the polls, at least. That's what we've seen so far. And, and I just feel like Democrats don't recognize what a tragically flawed candidate Hillary Clinton is. Um, now, we're starting to see some effects of the feel the burn movement, by the way. Uh, the news in today is that Debbie Wasserman Schultz out of Florida, the DNC chair, has flip-flopped on her uh, uh, payday loan stand. She was standing with the payday loan industry against Elizabeth Warren's Consumer Bureau on these new regulations to rein in the predatory practices of these payday loan places. And Debbie, being in the pocket of these payday loansters, uh, was supporting, was opposing you know, Elizabeth Warren on this. Well, she's finally flipped, decided to support Elizabeth Warren's bureau on these payday loans. So it seems to me like she's starting to feel the burn. She's starting to hear the calls for her head, uh, the calls for her ouster as the head of the DNC in response to what a lot of people feel is kind of a slanted, crooked uh, treatment of Bernie Sanders. So that's some interesting news that's happening. And more and more, we're hearing, we're seeing the polls that are, you know, that put Trump and Hillary neck and neck. I've seen one now that puts Trump a point ahead of Hillary. And there's that op-ed that I just read in the Wall Street Journal uh, that uh, Douglas Sean, a, a pollster and Clinton confidant back in the Bill Clinton days, who's saying that she might not be the nominee, that these flaws may have caught up with her, her penchant for flip-flopping and picking whichever side is politically expedient, uh, her uh, constant misspeaking and mistakes that she makes are finally catching up, especially after this inspector general's report showing that just about everything she said to defend herself in this email case has been a cover up or a lie. So that's why I'm so vehemently still fighting for Bernie Sanders is because I still believe he can be nominated and I still believe he's the best way to defeat Donald Trump. Now, should this not happen? Should we end up with Hillary versus Trump? I think a strong case can be made for supporting Gary Johnson in this election. First of all, you got Gary Johnson and William Weld, the former governor of uh, Massachusetts, two two-term Republican governors who served in Democratic states. So you got that, that maybe they can work across the aisle a little bit. And as, as libertarians go, they're not as libertarian-y as a lot of people would like, right? Gary Johnson got booed the other night at the Libertarian Convention for suggesting that driver's licenses was a good thing, <laughs> that the government licensing drivers was a good thing. That got boos from the Libertarians. Boo! We should be able to do anything we want, anytime we want, anywhere we want. I saw a meme the other day that said cats are the, that cats are the perfect Libertarians, completely convinced they're absolutely independent, but totally dependent on those around them. <laughs> That's a good point. But I think this election could be a good one for getting some third party representation. You know, if any, if any good comes to this, I think what it'll be is that, uh, that Gary Johnson gets in the race, siphons away a lot of votes for, from Trump, from Republicans who just can't bring themselves to vote for him and siphons away votes from Democrats that can't stand the thought of Hillary Clinton. 
and that we get a situation where the Libertarian Party could actually rise to being above 15% in the polls and be included in presidential debates, and we'd have an actual three-party race. Now, in that three-party race, it's possible that nobody gets enough delegates or gets enough electoral college votes. Then it goes to the House of Representatives, and then, oh, no, the Republican wins. Hmm. Oh, well, let's go back to Aspen for the legal seminar. We got a great presentation from Danica Noble talking about the implementation of Washington state market caps in legalization. Thanks to Mark Kleiman and Botech, the company that was hired by the taxpayers to consult in Washington. I am so excited. I get to talk about this one. Market caps. Anybody heard of Mark Kleiman? So... If we had a Clinton presidency, he is pretty likely to be on that transition team, I think. And I don't know how that makes you feel, but lots of activists and people who have spent a lot of time in this industry think, even though Mark um, has a lot of perhaps inappropriate assumptions, he's still going to be better than anyone who's ever been in that role before. Okay, but let's talk about what happened in Washington. Washington, Mark Kleiman, who is not a lawyer, who is not an economist, who is not a statistician, uh, decided what he would do with a bunch of the money through the LCB, that's our regulatory body, the Liquor Control Board, Liquor liquor Cannabis Board now. We are going to estimate exactly how many retail locations are required to serve the demand. And we're going to find out exactly how much canopy space is required to serve that demand. His numbers were extremely specific. So spent a ton of money looking at it, and we are going to have, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong right now, like 223 retail locations. You're like, 23? Really? You got down to the three there? And you did that estimating what was a black and a gray market? Wow, I always thought that was impossible to do. That's weird. Oh, and that's the exact number of liquor stores that the state used to have. Hmm. So, um, in my opinion, this is where a huge amount of the money has gone in Washington to pay for climate and Botex studies. Uh, and you know what? We, we have a device for figuring out what the right amount is. It's called the market. It works really well. And, and, and it's, it's, the problems are compounding right now as medical is being folded in. Uh, because when they, 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 this time, Botech did an estimate um, of how much uh, demand would be filled uh, for, to, to, to meet the medical demand. And again, spent a bunch of money, did a huge study, and then was like, it's one-third black market, one-third medical, one-third adult use. That's my numbers. You're like, oh, really? You got it? Well, that's a round number. That's amazing. And then they gave a big grant to the University of Washington to a lawyer who had graduated six months before and a class of law students to estimate what the canopy space was needed. So they were trying to figure out what was needed for the demand. So should we let some of these folks who were the medical providers or who were in the collective gardens before, do we need to give some more licenses out so those guys can come in? And they looked just at supply side. They didn't look at demand at all. Like, maybe if you're medical, you want a different type of supply. They didn't look at that at all. Instead, they tried to look in, again, estimating this not previously recorded black market or gray market demand 
And they came out with a number that said, nope, we don't need any more canopy space. So don't bring in any of those people who have been doing this for 10 years when it was with great liability, when it was with great risk. So market caps. This is, I can't speak for other states, but I can say in Washington, I think we've spent a lot of money that we could have spent on educational campaigns. There really are none in Washington to talk to children. Um, There haven't been really any effective ones. And business hasn't come in because wasn't the go low, go slow here? Wasn't that industry paid for here in Colorado? I think it might have been because there was the rats in the cage approach that the state did that nobody really liked that one. Don't be a lab rat. Don't be experimented on. Um, But then I think industry came back with some. So in Washington, um, even though I-502, that's our initiative, set set money aside for educational campaigns, um, that money was taken and not used for educational campaigns, and Botech got a ton of it to tell us exactly how many retail locations are required. Oh, yeah. Correct. That is one of his main tenets. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes. So, Kleiman. We'll see if we see him again. And we'll see if we see... Okay, and just one more thing. And it's not an appropriate context, but I'm going to do it anyway. If we had a Trump presidency, and we had Chris Christie, who I thought was going to be the Attorney General, based on a few of the tea leaves, but now is going to be on the transition team in, t- in charge of who will run the... DEA and the DOJ and all that. Does Trump care a ton about weed? I don't know. But do you know who does? Chris Christie. So You're really clouding the energy in this room right now. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. Oh, just the idea of Chris Christie involved in a presidential transition team appointing the heads of DEA, FDA, NIDA, Bugs are. Oh my god. <clears throat> I think I threw up in my mouth a little. Uh, I'm going to have to cure this nausea with a little bit of a safety break, so we'll be right back. Keep your cannabis cravings under control. Feed your mind with CannabisRadio.com. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. It's time for Cannabis Facts about teen drug use from Robert Platchorn's TheSilverTour.org. This message is supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. A recent survey by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control indicates that in states that have legalized medical marijuana, the rate of marijuana consumption among high school students has not increased. In fact, in legal states like Colorado, teen use has actually decreased significantly. It's simply no longer a big deal for teenagers in legal states. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. 
the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com, the National Wildlife Refuge for Marijuana Unicorns. With over six years of experience in the industry, New Era CPAs is one of the nation's leading cannabis accounting firms, helping hundreds of growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies with their tax, legal, and business strategies. New Era CPAs offices cover the West Coast from Seattle to San Diego, and their skilled team is always available to help you take your business to the next level. Visit NewEraCPAs.com for more info and set up a consultation. Welcome to the New Era. Warning, hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. 23 after the hour, and we continue our look at the normal Aspen legal seminar. Got a great presentation by an attorney who has uh, litigated in front of the Supreme Court. And here is Adam Wolf discussing one of the federal cases that is trying to use civil RICO statutes. Those are uh, the statutes we use against mobsters to take down Colorado's legal marijuana industry. Let's start talking about those three, and the first of the three, um, Safe Streets Alliance versus Medical Marijuana of the Rockies. Um, So, Jerry Olson was the owner of Medical Marijuana of the Rockies. It was based in Frisco, Colorado, which is, what, about 10 miles from Breckenridge? Um, uh, He owned a store, he owned and operated a store. Um, It had been doing fairly well, fairly successful for a number number of years, and Jerry decided that he wanted to move his shop. And so he entered into an intent to purchase a building um, that was much closer to the freeway entrance. Um, And it would have been a much larger building, a much bigger footprint for Jerry. Um, Things seemed to be going at least according to plan, and as Jerry was working through the financing of this, um, he was hit with a lawsuit. The building adjacent to the building he was going to purchase filed this lawsuit alleging that Jerry and a bunch of people he had been doing business with were racketeers under RICO. Um, The building adjacent to Jerry's building was the Holiday Inn. Um, So the Holiday Inn of Frisco um, brought this case. Um, The Holiday Inn, mind you, that for some time had been receiving payments from a group of physicians to um, conduct consultations on the Holiday Inn's property. Um, Nonetheless, um, filed this repo case against Jerry. Um, we're going to talk about some of the... Yeah, please. We're talking federal repo, not state repo. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And so this was filed in federal court in the District of Colorado um, as a, um, a federal civil case. Um, RICO has both a, a civil and a criminal component to it. This was the civil side. Um, the case was filed not just against Jerry, um, but it was filed against... Uh, the owner and seller of the building he was trying to acquire. It was filed against the individual who loaned Jerry money. Right? And we're not talking about a big, a big shop here. The guy lo- apparently loaned Jerry $35,000. And as a result of that, this person got hit with a RICO lawsuit, which could have resulted in serious room for him in a whole lot of ways. They filed the case against Jerry's bank. 
um, against the construction worker who was working on the building to build it out for Jerry, against the bonding company, um, and against Jerry's accountant. We're going to talk a little bit um, in, in a few minutes just about the implications of that. Um, and one of the things that I want to think about with all of you is whether we as attorneys, I, is everybody here an attorney or most people here are attorneys? Um, whether we as an attorney actually may have to worry about this ourselves. Um, I think it's an interesting question. Um, so the idea behind the case is simple. And in my mind, it's a little frighteningly simple. Um, the main RICO statute, 18 U.S.C. 1962, prohibits two or more people from conspiring to violate any number of laws, right? And it specifies a number of them, and some of them are a little less specific. But in the case of um, RICO, it actually does, I have most of these up on a slide, not this particular one. The RICO statute does define racketeering activity to include, among other things, dealing in a controlled substance or listed chemical under the CSA, um, or the felonious manufacture, importation, receiving, concealment, buying, selling, or otherwise dealing in a controlled substance. So, at least on the surface, that would seem to cover the type of things that Jerry was alleged to be doing. Um, I think one could try to make some arguments around that, but at least on the surface, that did seem to apply. Um, fair enough, I guess. Um, but as I saw this case, um, we did at least have an ace in the hole, which is the Supreme Court's recent standing doctrine regarding RICO. Um, and it's one of those instances where all of these, we, we have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to thank for this. Um, you know, all of these conservative corporate entities have actually made serious inroads with the U.S. Supreme Court in trying to trim or narrow down the scope of RICO liability. And while that has bedeviled plaintiff's lawyers over the years, it actually has worked wonders for Jerry Olson. <laughs> um, and so... Oh, there it was. Um, so RICO creates a private right of action for, quote, any person injured in his business or property by reason of racketeering activity. Okay? So the key words here are by reason of. Those three little words have spawned, I don't know, probably half a dozen Supreme Court cases. What does it mean to um, be injured by reason of Activity, because it's some, you know, you have a spectrum, right? And this is like all of your causation cases that you may have. At one end of the spectrum, causation could not be any more clear. On the other end, it's rather attenuated, and you have, you know, five different steps or five different people it needs to go through until you have an injury. And what the Supreme Court has said is that it's over here, that it's a very narrow understanding or interpretation of causation. Um, so the Supreme Court has said that by reason of which the Supreme Court calls RICO proximate cause. Um, you need to have a proximate cause or a direct injury. Okay? Um, you, it needs to be the direct result. And there just needs to be one single step between the action and the injury. So far from, if you remember our spectrum here, right? Far from over here where you have, you know, four or five people touching this thing, you need to have one activity and that directly leading to injury. Now, this is what we wrote in Jerry's brief, um, that the civil RICO plaintiff must be the, quote, direct victim or the intended target of defendant's conduct. That's what the Supreme Court has said over the years. Um, now, that is a pretty stringent standard. I, you do not find such difficult causation standard in most federal statutes. 
And how did that play out in Jerry's case? Did anybody know what the alleged harm was um, to the plaintiff in this case, to the Holiday Inn? That's the, that, that pretty much is the other RICO case that I'm going to talk about. That's a, it's, a, it's a very good point. Um, um, yeah, so affiliate, uh, sort of closely associated with the hotel room prices is that they were losing customers, right? Um, that they had had a couple of high school ski teams that were coming in um, that had heard about this from God knows where um, and called up the hotel and decided to cancel their annual reservations. Um, the other potential harm that they alleged to have suffered is that they had then spent money to mitigate the harm that they had thought maybe was going to befall them through Jerry's store. Now, that doesn't really fit neatly into the RICO proximate cause analysis. Um, certainly, the Holiday Inn was not the, quote, intended target of Jerry's business. Right? Um, and it wasn't really fulfilling the, quote, the requisite single step between the action and their harm. At the very least, there was one other step, which is that somebody needed to read about this, call up the hotel, and cancel their reservations. So at the very least, you had two steps there. We actually argued it was four or five steps. But yes? But is that a net loss of business, or is it just one person saying, I don't want to go? Good. So I, I was going to get there, but let's jump ahead. No, no, no. Um, so when you're talking about what, what do you have in mind? What I have in mind is you'll have some organizations that will say, okay, I don't want my kids around there or what have you. But you'll have other organizations say, hey, fantastic, you're right next door. Now I'm coming in and we're going to bring a big group. Right. So they end up making more money in the long run. Exactly. And so one of the things that I was um, – all right, spoiler alert. Um, we won. They dismissed the case. Um, uh, and one of the reasons that I think they dismissed the case, and I'm getting to your point right now, is that we propounded some discovery that was aimed at exactly that. And I think it was going to be, Paul, we talked about this, I think. Um, it was going to be super interesting to try to develop um, some evidentiary basis to say hardly losing money, the Holiday Inn was going to win, right? It was going to be a net positive. And I think that the, the forces behind this that were paying for the Holiday Inn's case was actually concerned that what was going to develop out of these cases not, was not just a loss, it was not just a ruling saying that there's no proximate cause, that there's no civil RICO liability, but some finding by the court that Jerry's business was actually economically beneficial. Um, and so I had a, a number of really interesting conversations with potential experts about how would you demonstrate a model for showing that, Jerry, that Jerry's business was going to have a net positive result on the Holiday Inn. Um, from a legal standpoint, from an expert law standpoint, it's actually it's a, it's a fairly challenging thing to do, but one can do that. Um, there's certainly, you know, econometricians who could figure that out. Um, and there's, an, you know, an emerging body of scholarship about the effect of um, more liberalized marijuana laws. And, um, you know, it would have been a super interesting discovery battle. Um, and ultimately, I think that may have been one of the things, at least, that led them to dismiss the case against Jerry. Um, let me go back to um, sort of this proximate cause thing. And the reason I and perseverating on this a bit, is that I think it is super important as more of these RICO cases get filed, and more of them will get filed, for us to have an answer to the following <coughs> question. The main response from the Holiday Inn regarding this proximate cause issue was, listen, RICO explicitly says that it applies to violations of the CSA. If you have this stringent standard that you're trying to apply to marijuana-related RICO offenses, you're basically saying civil RICO can never apply, right? That it's an empty set 
Because you're never, the defendant is never, excuse me, the plaintiff is never the intended target. Okay? It is actually a very interesting question in my mind. Um, although I'm probably just a dork. Um, but, um, so I, real, I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out what would be a likely, um, what would be a marijuana enterprise that could lead to RICO liability satisfying proximate cause? And so um, I would love for somebody to come up with an example. I think it would be helpful to know. I've maybe come up with one or two. Go on. It's interesting how the uh, opponents of marijuana reform are now taking to these RICO cases, civil RICO cases that he's talking about, trying to prove conspiracies. And as he continues, as Adam Wolf continues in his uh, presentation, he points out that the logical endpoint of all of these conspiracies would be the guy who cuts your lawn, the guy who delivers your newspaper could all be involved in these things if you take it to that extreme. That entire presentation will be part of our SoundCloud archive of the Normal Aspen Legal Seminar. When we come back from break, we've got one more clip from Mary Kahn, attorney from Texas, telling us how mental illness, the criminal justice system, and the drug war are all intertwined. We've got a little clip for you, and then we'll wind things up early so I can get off to the party. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. From dabs to chivas, sativas to indicas, we roll out a whole concentrate of fresh new content every week. It's like going from the greenhouse to the dispensary. CannabisRadio.com. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the third annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo. The most influential business event in the marijuana industry returns for three days in Oakland, California. Join your fellow industry leaders and policy influencers June 20th through 22nd for an in-depth educational experience and network with more than 3,000 cannabis professionals. The 2016 Cannabis Business Summit and Expo will feature keynote presentations from California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and Numi Organic Tea CEO Ahmed Rahim giving you insight into cutting-edge policy discussions and the most innovative business practices. All this plus the most comprehensive expo floor in the industry. The Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 20th through 22nd in Oakland. Don't miss out. Register right now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com and save 15% off registration using promo code RADIO15. That's CannabisBusinessSummit.com, promo code RADIO15. Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina. Candid. I want to give you the inside story. Captivating. I want to introduce you to my kind and amazingly talented friends. Compelling. We get to meet some of the most amazing cannabis activists and warriors around. Listen in as medical marijuana pioneer Dr. Dina shares never-before-heard stories, chats with cannabis insiders and celebrity friends, and provides invaluable perspective and insight into one of the fastest-growing industries in the world. I want to share with you what was once confidential information. Let's expose the truth, discuss the issues, and learn the facts. Cannabis Confidential, only on CannabisRadio.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The Supreme Court is wrong on the Second Amendment. Okay, maybe you're high too. 
New beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're live in Aspen, Colorado for the normal Aspen Legal Seminar, and we're winding things up today a little bit early because I've got to make my way to Jerry Goldstein's house for the normal fundraising party. Should be a really good time. The former and current Pitkin County Sheriffs will be there. There'll be medicated food. Uh, Chef Chris Lanter is catering. It's going to be great. But now we bring you one last clip. This is Mary Kahn, attorney from Texas, describing mental illness in America and how it's tied into the war on drugs and our criminal justice system. How big is how big is the mentally ill population? It it, it depends on the definition of mentally ill. The Department of uh, the Bureau of Justice reported in in 2006. And again, I have to apologize. There are no recent studies that I could find. Work, I mean, we worked for hours looking for more recent studies. So some of the statistics I'm going to give you are older than I'd like them to be, but I don't think they've actually changed. So 2006, 1.26 million breakdown, which is 45 percent of federal offenders, 56% of state offenders, and 64% of jail inmates had, were, have, were, mental, were defined as having mental health issues because they were receiving some sort of treatment, which is, you know, not that much. What about all the people who are not defined by the Bureau of Justice and are not receiving treatment so they're not counted? Uh, I suggest to you, obviously, it's a whole lot worse. When... Um, the profile of a mentally ill person, you know, it's funny, I can't, I can't, my eyes are so bad, it's, it's these contacts, I'm sure it's not my age. Um, women represent the largest par- par- proportion of the incarcerated mentally ill generally, while men uh, represent a higher per- percentage of the antisocial personality disorder. Um, one of the things we do, like I had a psychologist call me yesterday, where we've got a, a a capital murder case where the guy's kind of out there and we agreed to not test him for the things that would define him as a um, any kind of personality disorder which would be of course used immediately to slam him hard so we have to be real careful about testing they would do with our clients and um, I was grateful to have a good psychologist to, to help me figure that out but we do have young men with these personality disorders, these antisocial disorders, and they're diagnosed as children. Um, you can find television programs and YouTube shows about that. Those under 20, not surprisingly, uh, have a higher rate of mental illness, and those over 55 have less mental illness. Uh, so some of us in this room are probably disqualified from being mentally ill, and I'm really happy about that. Uh, Caucasians are more likely to report mental illness than uh, African Americans or Hispanics. 
I'm not sure what that means because I know that different cultures have different attitudes about mental illness and some people say, well, that's that mental illness or that PTSD thing, that's for those people in that other cultural group, not for the not for my group. We don't do that kind of thing. I'm not sure. So I think there's an issue there uh, related to that. Mentally ill people, 75% of them, were unemployed when they were arrested. So obviously employment and work is a big deal. Um, 28% were receiving illegal income. I'm not going to go into details. Use your imagination. 40% had a general physical medical condition at the time. And all were twice twice as likely to have been homeless before entering this, the, the arrest situation than the non-mentally ill. So you've got mental illness and homelessness, which is no surprise to any of us who are in the system, working in the system. We all know that. But it's just, the statistically, it's kind of interesting, and statistically, you wonder what we're going to do about it. And I guess what I'm doing today is bringing you some, some issues and some problems and hoping that I can inspire some people to think about those issues and those problems and to trying to help us figure out what the solutions are because we've got a big problem. And again, normal is doing what what it's doing to decriminalize marijuana. Hopefully that will and obviously it should uh, branch and expand into decriminalizing other things like homelessness, mental illness, other drugs uh, of choice that are not necessarily uh, harmful or don't necessarily are not uh, involved in criminal activity uh, as we, as the common people, even us in our common sense, uh, define it. So what is a mentally, uh, what is the treatment of a mentally ill offender? Uh, 65% of inmates identified as having severe psychiatric symptoms received no mental health treatment while incarcerated. 33% diagnosed with a mental illness reported being treated. So people die in prison and in jails for lack of treatment, for just absolute neglect. I was lucky some years ago, I had a good friend who was arrested for DWI in Houston. He'd had one glass of wine. When they did a breath test, it showed extremely low. There was no indication he was on any kind of drugs, which he was not. He was diabetic. He was in a diabetic situation, and I I don't know what it was exactly, but they got him to the hospital. He was treated, given insulin or food or something, I don't know. And, And he ended up that you know, taking ins- insulin by injection twice a day for the rest of his life, uh, that was lucky for him. Okay, how many people just sit in their jail cells untreated, seriously ill, and untreated and ignored and neglected, and they die? And there are lawsuits. Great, and I, I acknowledge those of you who pursue those lawsuits because they need to be pursued, because the, the sheriffs and the jails and the cities have to um, have to uh, be held accountable for the for the custody, for the people that are in their custody and care and control. Mary Kahn speaking on the tragic issue of mental illness in America and how it's been shuffled over to the criminal justice system. Hopefully we can do something about that sometime soon, and maybe marijuana tax money can help fund that. That's all the time I got for today. I've got to call it early here on this beautiful Friday afternoon because we're headed off to the normal Aspen Legal Seminar fundraiser party at Jerry Goldstein's house, catered by Chef Chris Lanter of the famed Aspen restaurant Cash Cash. 
so named because you need twice as much cash to eat there. <laughs> but it's going to be good stuff, both infused and non-infused. Follow my Instagram feed, at Radical Russ, if you want to see some pictures. Thanks for joining us. For everyone at Normal and CannabisRadio.com, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth.